passage. Our Father, we praise you that you have preserved this scripture for our good. This conversation between Paul and his friends in Corinth is here for our edification. Please teach us, train us, open our eyes to its goodness that we might delight in it and in you. For your name's sake. Amen. Well, over the last couple of decades, we've seen the rise of safe spaces. Lots in the news over even the last six months on safe spaces. These are places that you can retreat to to be protected from offensive speech. One university in the United States has equipped their safe space with Play-Doh and videos of puppies playing to kind of calm the nerves of distressed students. And I don't mean to mock by drawing attention to this. It's a serious thing, isn't it? Every university in this country now has safe spaces, pretty much. They, they serve to offer protection from people who, in the name of freedom of speech, will say horrendous things to each other. It's important that we don't, uh, we don't mock this. Actually, we do want to have uh, protection from uh, violent and offensive speech. But as one journalist I read uh, made, uh, pointed out, if you have safe spaces, then by definition you're saying everywhere else is an unsafe space. And we can't have unsafe spaces. And so, uh, by extension, we must uh, grow our safe spaces to cover whole campuses and indeed whole communities, whole societies. And that means universities have ceased to be places of vigorous dialogue, of debate and the exchange of ideas. You're not allowed to say anything that might offend anybody else in any context at all. They have become silenced places, just in case our words hurt somebody's feelings. When you add into that the fact that our social interaction on social media tends to be with people who think like us, then as a culture we have become increasingly infantilised, emotionally fragile, unable to take criticism. And I think that we are rapidly reaching the point where even the idea of criticism at all as something that could be in any way a good thing is increasingly receding into the past. Such criticism is now often labelled hate speech, isn't it? And that's defined as any speech which produces a negative physical or emotional response in another person. That's hate speech. And so if my words in any way make you feel sad, then I'm guilty of hate speech. If I uh, criticise anything or you criticise me, there's a sense in which you are trying to control me and shape me and bind me by your own will. And that is borderline hate crime, isn't it? So you now have the ironic situation just uh, in the last few months where that well-known social conservative Jermaine Greer is publicly derided and banned from speaking at a university on uh, women in politics, uh, something which she's an expert on for uh, over the last sort of 30 or 40 years, because she's expressed the opinion that uh, male-to-female transgender reassignment surgery doesn't make you a woman. And she is hated by the very uh, movement that she was so foundational in setting up. I'm I'm not meaning to comment on the rightness or wrongness of her opinion. Frankly, I think Miss Greer has a lot to answer for. Nor is it to deny that her comments might be offensive to someone. But it is alarming 
to me that we can no longer express a, a personal opinion or even state a fact without it uh, being a hate crime because it offends somebody else's sensibilities. <coughs> that is where we are as a culture. And so here is my question for us. Should church be a safe space? Not just when we're here in the building, but wherever we are gathered as Christians, should it be a safe space, whether we're in the coffee shop or on the beach or sitting around the dining table together? Should being a Christian mean that we're part of a zero offence society? That appears, I think, to be the question uh, behind this passage in front of us this morning. Just look at verse 8 with me, in the middle of our text. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Uh, The Corinthians have uh, sent Titus back to Paul and and expressed their uh, unhappiness, their distress at his harsh letter. And so is Paul heartless by saying, I don't regret it? Well, no, look what he says. I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, though only for a little while. So here's the context. Peter, Paul has written to uh, this church in Corinth, the, the church that he founded. It was a painful letter. It was a severe letter, a stern letter, and it has grieved them. They were brought to sorrow by it. Uh, Paul himself is upset that they were upset, but he doesn't regret the letter. Perhaps that has to do with the subject of the letter. So in our reading back in chapter 2, Paul told us of an offender in Corinth, somebody who it seems had been saying things about Paul that were untrue, spreading rumours, defaming him, perhaps slandering him as not not a good teacher. And it seems that the Corinthians were quite happy to let this person wander around the church spreading these lies. And so Paul tells us in 2 verse 5 that he was grieved by that. He's the offended party. Paul is sad, so he sends a letter to them, a stern letter that makes them sad, which means he's even more sad, and so it goes on. And it sounds like the sort of tit-for-tat nastiness that demands safe spaces. Let's all be quiet, and everyone's happier. It sounds like the sort of thing that my kids do when one of them says, well, he hit me first. And so it goes on, and suddenly someone's being hit with uh, bricks, And you have to send them into separate rooms to calm down and reflect on what they're doing. Does Paul and this church in Corinth, do they need to be sent to separate rooms until they've all calmed down? See, the the Corinthians seem to be asking Paul, in view of their own hurt feelings, why did you write the letter, Paul? Why did you send such a stern letter? Paul said back in chapter 2, verse 1, right at the beginning of our first reading, that he sent the letter to avoid having to come in person because he'd have said the same things and it would have been even worse. You know, really, calm down, Paul. And we all know, don't we, if you send an email a bit too quickly without sort of reflecting and reading over it, those things don't necessarily calm down emotions and relationships with people. We know they can be misread and, and so Paul has to give an explanation here about why he's written this letter. And it's important for us. It's important for us because if even the Apostle Paul cannot engage in robust dialogue with other Christians without causing offence, then maybe we just need to retreat from that altogether. Maybe we just need to say, church is going to be a safe space and we'll all just smile and eat quiche and never say what we mean or what needs to be said. 
Let me ask then. If you hear something in a sermon and it hurts your feelings, you don't want to hear it, is it okay just to shut down and ignore what the Bible says? If a Christian friend comes to you and says, look, I think we need to have a chat about something. I've noticed that you've been behaving like this and we need to just have a chat about it. Is it okay for me to be outraged? How dare you? And if we think that church should be a safe space, will I ever speak up to correct somebody else? The teaching of a a brother in error or have that awkward conversation over coffee or or tell my spouse or my kids or let them say to me, "Uh, you're wrong. See, in our our post-truth culture, we're not even sure what right and wrong is anymore. But as Christians, we do believe there's right and wrong, don't we? There is a right way to live. It's Jesus has demonstrated that he's lived the perfect life and we know that we don't. So all of us are in error in some place. All of us need this gentle correction and pointing in the right direction. So David, too hard. When you're raising Joshua and he does the wrong thing, are you going to be bold enough to say to him, Joshua, you're wrong. You're wrong in this and you need to learn. There's a right way to live. Are we, any of us, going to say that to each other? Can you see, if we start to recede into the safe space mentality, we're, we're in danger. We start to indulge error. We start to indulge sin. We start to say, your feelings are more important than the truth. But what if our feelings are wrong? What if I'm wrong to feel offended? See, in our society today, we've made feelings who I feel I am, to be absolute. We've decided that feelings are God. Who I feel that I am is who I am, and who are you to tell me different? You have no right to correct me. I have my own truth. But our feelings are broken, brothers and sisters. Sometimes we get hurt because we're full of pride. And the Bible tells us to put our pride to death. Sometimes our feelings are wrong. In fact, the whole Bible story really is about God rescuing a people who are broken and restoring us to be like Jesus. That's where we're heading. And this passage comes right in the midst of that. Paul wants this church in Corinth to grow up to be like Jesus. So let me refine the question as we, as we dig into the text here. I don't think the question is, is it okay to confront each other? I think it's necessary that we confront each other from time to time. That's a very confrontational word, isn't it, confront? But we need to address each other. We need to help each other, sometimes rebuke each other. That's a given, I think, given that we're fallen people. But the question is how? How should we correct one another to the glory of God? And that takes us to our first point on our handouts. We must be motivated by love for those with whom we are robust. We must be motivated by love for those with whom we are robust. At the beginning of our passage, Paul is ending a long section that's run from our reading in chapter 2 through to this point, largely about his ministry. How he's done his ministry, what his ministry is about. Paul is an authentic gospel worker seeking to reconcile people to God. And then he says, verse 2, We have wronged no one, we have corrupted no one, we have exploited no one. See, Paul's not on the take. 
He's not in this ministry lark for uh, personal advantage. He's not after their money. He's not after their uh, reputation that comes from being a great apostle. Perhaps that was the claim that the person was making in chapter 2, that Paul is just after his own ego. In fact, Paul stresses throughout our passage that he loves the Corinthians. He gives us one command in our passage, verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts. Why? Because verse 3. You have such a place in our hearts that we would live and die with you. Paul's heart, his, his happiness, his very life is tied to theirs. Their thriving is his thriving. Their pain is his pain. And so he tells us in, in 2 verse 4, I, I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart and with many tears not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. Paul's aim was not to offend. Paul was not after their tears. Paul's aim was to express his deep love for them, his personal anguish at the state they'd let themselves get into. But because of his love, he had to speak up. And what he had to say was going to upset them. But we've seen already in, in verse 7, in chapter uh, 7, verse 8 rather, Paul regretted those tears. He was hurt by their hurt. His aim was not to offend. He wasn't going out of his way to cause them pain. But Paul doesn't regret the letter, even though it caused them pain. He doesn't wish he hadn't sent it, as we may wish some of our emails hadn't been sent. And he doesn't wish that he'd said something different, as though he'd done the wrong thing, just because they were hurt. He said what needed to be said out of deep love for them. Do you see, Paul? for Paul, love forces him to speak. He cannot not speak and still claim to love them. They are in error, they are wrong, and they are listening to falsehood that is going to lead them astray from God. He must speak. He just loves them too much not to. But love also constrains what Paul says and how he says it. See, Paul cannot be guilty of hate speech because he loves them. And you cannot hate what you love. Their pain is his pain. He might well be grieving their behaviour, but it's love that drives this letter. He has to write with real biblical concern. Uh, The Bible is the plumb line. It it tells us what God's plan is, what his purposes are, how we're to live. It is the, the line by which everything is measured. And they are in error. So he has to speak with biblical concern for their well-being. But it has to be proportional. It has to be fair. He won't overstep the mark because he loves them. And I hope straight away the application of this principle is pretty obvious to us. You must love. As you look around the room today, this is family. The the eternal well-being of everybody in this room should be a matter of deep concern to every single one of us. If you do not speak from love, do not speak. Because you will offend unnecessarily. But if you love, you must speak where it's necessary. Wives, do you love your husbands enough to challenge them on the sins that only you see? 
Parents, do you love your kids enough to correct them when they're wrong? Housemates, friends, home group buddies, do you love the people that God has placed around you enough to say the hard things with tears? Uh, What about those of us who find it easy to speak up? Can you do so out of love? Not anger, not offence, not because you've been sinned against again, but from love, wanting the best for the other. Is your response proportional? Back in chapter 2, Paul uh, tells the Corinthians to stop. They were being lazy, they were indulging a false teacher. Paul writes to them and they react. They go, gosh, we've got it completely wrong. And they start hammering this guy. And he's, he's repenting, he's uh, broken. And Paul says, stop, love him. He's repented. Welcome him back. And Paul says, you've got to be proportional, not, not be overzealous, not be hammering each other. Paul seeks a, a proportional response that is uh, biblical, keen to apply the scriptures, keen to hold up the plumb line and say, this is how we're to live. Will you walk with me in this? Love speaks up, but love also governs how we speak. And perhaps this week there are conversations that each of us have to have with a friend or a loved one. Just to show them the scriptures, just to say, are you sure you're living rightly in this area? Paul is motivated by love, so he tells the truth, but he doesn't speak just so that the hard words are said. To absolve himself, to wash his hands of the situation, he speaks in order to elicit a response. They haven't been living rightly according to God's word. And so they, they, they've been indulging this false teacher. And Paul tells us that he wants two things. So verse 12, look down at the passage with me, please. He wants that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. Now that's fairly convoluted, but basically what Paul is saying is this. You love us, but you've been allowing this false teaching about us to slander us. And I wanted to write to stir you up to show you that really you do love us, after all. And they do. Their responses, we'll see, shows that they do. But even that's not enough. Back in chapter 2, verse 9, he says this, Another reason I wrote to you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. In other words, you've been living wrongly, but now I want you to be obedient to God. See, we live in a post-truth culture. We don't believe in right and wrong anymore. Live how you want to live. So long as you're authentic, so long as you live in accordance with what you're feeling, then everything's fine, even if you are a serial killer or whatever happens in extremists. But Paul says there's right and wrong. And I want you to grow up in obedience, to live by faith. And so now Titus has returned from Corinth, and we get to see how the Corinthians have responded And Paul would say, learn from them. And that's our second point on your handout. Respond to even hurtful correction with repentance, not worldly sorrow. Respond to even hurtful correction with repentance, not worldly sorrow. That's verses 8 through to the beginning of verse 13. And and this section really hinges on two ideas that we need to distinguish. Regret and repentance. The distinction is really important. And we start with uh, sorrow, verse 8. Sorrow here is 
uh, feeling sad about the situation that you find yourself in. This conversation, it's not an easy conversation. We all know those hard conversations, don't we? And, and it's not a happy situation. You're not bouncing around the room going, it's great, we're telling each other off. Um, that sadness, that sorrow, can lead to two different responses that Paul shows us. The sadness, I think, is unavoidable. If you say the hard things, feelings will be hurt. The sadness is unavoidable, but it can lead to two very different places. Uh, let's say, for example, that I had a, a, a sin problem. Imagine that I was a, a drunk, but I'd kept it hidden from you uh, for, for a good long while. And then one day, one of you catches me stumbling out of the pub uh, after hours. And so graciously, you confront me. Perhaps you wait till I've sobered up and we, we have a coffee and you say, look, um, there's a problem here. The Bible says you can't live like that. Uh, when we're confronted, however kindly, there's going to be awkwardness. There's going to be pain. There's going to be shame and embarrassment. Uh, I have a friend of mine who's a, a missionary in Japan. And over there, the, the culture is such that if you are publicly shamed, the right thing to do is commit suicide. Uh, that's not perhaps how it is here. We're not so much a shame culture here. And yet, who hasn't here wished the ground would open up and swallow us whole? from time to time, those conversations that are so painful, we just wish uh, we would go. And the question is, why are we sad in that situation and what can we do about it? And here are the two different responses that Paul highlights for us. The first is you have regret. Regret is wishing the conversation had never happened. That's what Paul hints at in verse 8, isn't it? Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. That is, I don't wish it hadn't happened. Though I did regret it. For a moment, I wished we'd never had that conversation. We're so good at regrets, aren't we, as Brits? For those of you from other parts of the world, forgive us. But this is us. We're good at regret. It's that social awkwardness where you've gone too far in a conversation and everyone starts looking around for the emergency exits and you all nod at each other and go, we are never going to speak about this again. And perhaps we'll never speak to each other again. It's just too awkward now. And Paul goes there briefly. I, I did regret it. He regrets the letter because it hurts them. But in the end, he doesn't regret it because they have the right response. They are brought to real repentance. So verse 9. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. Paul is not full of regret, but joy not delight in their pain his pain is their pain but in what their pain was led them to they repented see we, we might all be upset at, at the letter or, or that awkward conversation that exposes our sin publicly but the Corinthians recognise that what Paul said is true they recognise there is, there is some truth in what he said however harshly he said it and they do something about it. They repent it. That's a big Bible word, repent. And it means they recognise their sin for what it is. And they turn from it. They turn away from their rebellion against God and their indulgence of false teaching. And they've turned back to God and decided to live his way. To only embrace the truth. And then they put the situation right. And this verse 9, what does he say? You became sorrowful as God intended. And so were not harmed by us in any way. Even that little bit of uh, awkwardness, that social embarrassment, it's not really harm because repentance is so good for you. 
Yes, you were sad, but you weren't harmed, not really. Because in the end, you've repented. And that is what God desires. Indeed, verse 10, what does he say? Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regrets. Now, salvation is a massive idea, isn't it? Repentance and salvation go together. Salvation, in the end, is uh, being in God's new creation with Jesus, uh, forgiven our sins, living with him eternally as a totally sin-free people. And Paul is saying, your repentance from that sin is another step on the path to final salvation. You, you were going astray and you've turned around and you've come back and you're going the right way. And that is a good thing. And so in verse 11, Paul lists out the fruit of their repentance. Just uh, You can scan down the, the verse. Let me flag two of these things for you. Uh, notice their eagerness to clear themselves. Paul, you've written to tell us that we're doing wrong. And, and let me show you, we, we, we're not really doing the thing that, you were, uh, that you've pointed out. We're not going to live like that. And so their readiness to see justice done. Perhaps over-eager to see justice done on the perpetrator. And repentance is not just sadness at sin. It's doing something about it. It's the desire to kill the sin. To live differently as a result. And so, says Paul, it keeps you on the path to salvation. And this is a very, very different response to what he calls worldly sorrow. Verse 10, worldly sorrow brings death. See, if our sin is exposed and we have regret, but we never have repentance, then it comes down to one thing. We're not regretting the sin that's been exposed. We're regretting the conversation, the embarrassment, the shame. We're not regretting that we've sinned in the first place, but that somebody has pointed it out to us. Nobody likes to be exposed like that. Those conversations are always awkward, aren't they? I guess we all feel sad in those situations, but a truly Christian response is to admit our sin, to hate the sin, to repent of it, to turn away from it and put it right. Indeed, I think Paul is encouraging them to love him because he had the the spine to tell them the truth. Paul shares their happiness that his letter brought repentance and not real harm. It's a good, positive outcome. But if we never regret the sin, then we won't repent, will we? Instead, we'll become bitter about being exposed. We might become proud, self-defensive. I don't do that. How dare you? Who hasn't had that conversation? We assert our right to live as we please. I'm in charge. How dare you point out my faults in that way? Do you see how different that is? It's easy to be upset when our sin is exposed, but still to love the sin rather than the person pointing it out to us. In fact, we might end up hating the person who's pointed out our faults because we love the sin so much. In both cases, we feel exposed. There's no getting away from that. A loving letter, a gentle word of rebuke, has shown us up for what we are. We're ashamed. But now's the test. Will we respond as Christians? Will we accept that the exposure of our sin in a private context is a good thing and face our sin, hate the sin, and turn back to God? If that is us, then we'll, we'll grow as Christians. We'll become more like Jesus, which is the aim in the end. 
and we grow up in our salvation. But if we don't, if we crawl back into the darkness, if we push our friends away, if we choose darkness and death, that is the road to hell, brothers and sisters. That's what Paul says. That's the way of death. And again, can you see the application just sitting on the surface for us? How are you going to respond when a a brother or sister comes to you in love? A parent, a child, a spouse, a friend comes to you and says, "Have have you noticed that you do this thing? I've noticed that the way you talk to that person is is quite harsh, isn't it? It may be that the conversation feels hard. It may be the person doesn't use the tact that Paul has used. It might be that our feelings are hurt, but will we listen? Can we see past the embarrassment of the initial conversation? That's so hard for us Brits. Uh, To to the kernel of truth that's underneath it, to the, the sin that God in his kindness is pointing out to us. Can we see past the way that the person has spoken to us, to the heart, to the love which motivates them to get past that British awkwardness to actually speak about it in the first place? In a culture that is increasingly unable to say the hard things for fear of offence, the church needs to be different. We're not a safe space. We are a place where we talk openly, walk together, lead each other, towards godliness and eternal salvation. We have to have kingdom priorities for each other. Think of Jesus, never shy of saying the truth in any context. The most loving man who ever lived, the greatest, wisest teacher who ever lived, always willing to confront where it was needed and encourage where it was needed. We must speak in love and we must receive those rebukes in love. And then finally, love goes a step further. Paul here says, lastly, love responds to repentance with joy. Love responds to repentance with joy. Uh, Joy is actually the major theme in this passage. I've got uh, just a couple of minutes to point it out to you as we go. But as you read through this passage, notice the joy, rejoicing, happy language all the way through. Verses 4 through to 16. It's it's basically a giant joy sandwich. So in the middle of the sandwich, the meat of the sandwich is verses 8 to 13. Paul tells us that he's happy. Literally, I rejoice. He delights in their response to the letter. So that in verse 13, he can say, I'm encouraged or comforted. I delight. It's just brilliant. Verses 5 to 7, Paul talks about the anguish that he suffered. He was waiting for Titus. He wasn't sure how the Corinthians were responding to his letter. He was going from one place to the next, but his heart wasn't in it. His his mind was concerned for the Corinthians. But then verse 6, God comforted Paul by bringing Titus back to him. It's a great thing, isn't it, when a Christian friend you've not seen for a long time, you beat up, and he's encouraged, he's in a good way, and you think, brilliant, that is such good news. But more than that, Titus brings back news of the Corinthians and how they treated Titus so well. And so Paul was comforted on the basis of the comfort that you had given to Titus, he says. And then Titus says, they long for you, Paul. They've received your letter really well. They long to see you again and be united with you. And Paul goes, brilliant! And he rejoices again. Well, if 5 to 7 is the lettuce in your sandwich, the tomato is there in 13b to 15. Uh, There, 13, Paul rejoices in the joy of Titus. Titus is just so encouraged. He's been on this trip to see the Corinthians, and they've been such good news for him. And he's just like, I'm I'm just so full of uh, thankfulness, and Paul is so encouraged by that. 
He went there not being sure the Corinthians, their hearts were in it, not sure whether they'd be Christian in their response. And he's come back so full of encouragement. And so Titus rejoices, and seeing Titus rejoicing means Paul rejoices. There is joy and encouragement everywhere in this little section. And so to the bread, verse 4, Paul is able to declare his confidence in them. I take great pride in you, and in all our troubles, my joy knows no bounds. Why? Because I'm greatly encouraged by you. See, the Corinthians have demonstrated a godly response to Paul's harsh letter. And so on the evidence of this act of obedience on their part, Paul is convinced they'll go from strength to strength in their walk with God. But that confidence, in fact, is the basis of everything he says from chapter 8 onwards. Every appeal he makes to them to grow up as Christians is on the basis that he's seen them do it already. You've responded to the gospel, the letter I sent to you, you've responded to that with repentance and, and moving forward as Christians. I'm so convinced you'll do it again. So he says, the end of our passage, verse 16, I am glad or I rejoice that I can have complete confidence in you. The church isn't sorted. You read through the Corinthian letters, there's plenty of mess going on there. The church is a hospital for broken people, not, not, a, 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 not a retreat for well people. The church is not perfect in Corinth, but Paul is convinced they will go on from strength to strength because of how they respond to his letter. Do you see? Love leads to rejoicing. We love each other. We speak the truth in love to each other, even when it's hard. And when we see the other repent and grow up as a Christian, we rejoice all the more because our hearts are bound together. If we love each other enough to speak, we're going to love each other wonderfully when we see people growing up as Christians. When that happens, the heart that loves rejoices greatly, both in the repentance itself and the fruit from that repentance. So as we end, I wonder, how much joy do you have in the godliness of others in the church? How much do you thank God for those little kindnesses that you see as the simple fruit of a repentant life? Paul shows us that it's, it's right to care. Sometimes it's right to wound and be wounded in the name of growing up in godliness. And I think this passage gives us permission to have those conversations. But most of all, it's right to rejoice and be thankful when we see people growing up in their daily graces, as they grow up in repentance and faith. And so I take it even as we seek to have those conversations with each other this week, can I also encourage you to have a different kind of conversation? Can I encourage you to seek out a brother or sister and tell them how much you're encouraged by their walk with Christ in some way? The little gospel fruits that you see that perhaps they don't see, the ways in which they are growing up to be more like Jesus... Can you encourage each other? The church is not a safe space because we're sinners in need of correction if we're going to grow up together. Now, the church is not a safe space. It is much better than that. Should we pray? Our loving Father, praise you so much for the Lord Jesus who shows us what it is to live a godly life. Our Father, as we see him, we see so much of the failings in our own selves. Sometimes we don't see those failings unless they're pointed out by brothers and sisters. Please help us to be a church that is genuinely open to change, open to speaking the truth to each other, receiving that word with 
humility and repentance that we might grow up to be more and more like the Lord Jesus uh, taking those steps along the path to salvation and and our Father please uh, give us that heart of rejoicing that heart of love that uh, delights in the goodness the way that you are changing each and every one of us for your namesake Amen Our last song, uh, probably the best known uh, hymn in our country still today.